You are listening to Sunday Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and executive director of the Institute and your host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. O Master who loves mankind, illuminate our hearts with the pure light of your divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to understand the teachings of your holy scriptures, and still in us also the fear of your blessed commandments, that we may overcome all carnal desires, entering upon a spiritual life, and understanding and acting in all things according to your holy will. For you are the enlightenment of our souls and bodies, O Christ God, and to you we give glory together with your eternal Father and your all-holy, gracious, and life-giving Spirit, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome back. Everybody here, Annie Mitchell ascended the mountain of God, encountered the divine, gave birth to a new child. I did. This is our first recording since giving birth. Hello. Yes. Hello from maternity leave. <laughs> yes. Welcome back from a short maternity leave. Eh, well, you know, this is always fun. So I don't even really consider this to be work. So. Yeah, we, well, we have a lot of fun here. And I do appreciate really do. that. Annie, I got to tell you that um, being the executive director, founder executive director of the ICC is pretty much like a dream come true because yeah. I get to like do what I love to do. Like if you're like, okay, I'm going to go on vacation. What am I going to do? I'm going to bring my Bible with me. Right. Exactly. So this is like, what else, what else could you want? Imagine doing exactly. in life. I, I, exactly. I do truly love my work here at the Institute. So welcome back Annie and welcome to all of our participants who are joining together for this Sunday, which is, yeah. Are you ready for a Sunday Corpus Christi? Well, <laughs> you know, I know, okay. I know. I'm I'm, I just got comments. you on a hobby horse, I think. Just I know. Okay. I have to, let me just words. a little, I'll get on a little hobby horse and then I'll get off it. We'll get onto the business. And that is the Corpus Christi was traditionally celebrated on a Thursday because of Holy Thursday. Right. And so, okay. Anyways, but be, it got transferred to Sunday so that people wouldn't commit mortal sin by missing mass, whatever. I'd have no idea, but the case is that most, most, churches today in the new calendar celebrate Corpus Christi on a Sunday, but in the traditional Roman Catholic calendar uh, on Thursday. So regardless of when you're receiving this video recording of our Sunday Gospel Reflection, whether you attend the traditional Latin Mass or whether you attend the New Order, the Mass of Pope Paul VI, hopefully these these studies will be helpful to you. So that's, I'm getting off my hobby horse now. Well, I was going to say, I mean, one advantage, I mean, one thing that you can say is that more people will be hearing these really awesome readings. So, yes, you know, the Lord is... can always bring good things out of evil. Exactly. So, yes. Let's go ahead. <laughs> with that, with, with that comment, let's, let's talk about these <laughs> really awesome readings. Father uh, okay. Wonderful. Let's do it. Let's jump in here. What, 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 if you're taking notes, write these down, Annie, give us our 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 chapters and verses and and so forth yes indeed so for the solemnity of the body and blood of christ formerly known as corpus christi the first reading this year will be from the book of genesis chapter 14 verses 18 through 20 our psalm responsorial psalm is from psalm 110 the gospel is luke chapter 9 Luke 9, verses 11b through 17. And our epistle is from St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. We're going to um, take a maybe a, well, not a different approach, really. Sunday Gospel Reflection here at the Institute of Catholic Culture, the whole goal here is to give the context, right? I don't want to get, uh, sometimes I get on a hobby horse, a little homilies and things like that, but I really try to avoid that as best we can so that we're giving you the context where in, in kind of like the seedbed, if you will, into which your priest can preach his homily and you're going to have a better context to be able to receive those 
the, that homily. So the educational piece of it, which is difficult to do in a homily, and, you know, going back in the Bible and doing things like that, that's what we're trying to do so that the homily can be preached effectively. So we're going to do exactly that. And we we'll spend quite a bit of time doing that kind of historical geographic background rather than a commentary on the Eucharist. Okay, you're going to get that at Mass. So let's go ahead and jump into this, Annie. Yeah, so our first reading is Genesis chapter 14. So turn to Genesis 14 in your Bible, and we will be reading verses 18 through 20. It says, in those days, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and being a priest of the Most High God, he blessed Abram with these words. Blessed be Abram by God most high, the creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who delivered your foes into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Okay, Father, I gotta say, like, talk about taking things out of context. There's so many questions that I have about the context yeah. of this particular reading. These just. Well it's a reading we know well, right? Yeah. It's because it's like from our childhood, we know this story, right? But you're right. The context is not very well known. Yeah. So let's get the backstory here. So first of all, I mean, there's this, this reference to foes being delivered into his hand. You know, there's, all, I mean, who's Melchizedek? But we have all of these things. So first of all, what has led up to this encounter between Abram and Melchizedek, first of all? It does mention foes in your hand right there. Yeah. Yes. I was like, where does it mention foes in your hand? You're right. Who delivered your foes into your hand. Exactly. So this is the context, Annie. And, and for those that are interested in getting like a, di a deeper dive, by the way, I did a series called Swords and Serpents. We're going to do a retake on that this coming curriculum year cool. in 22, 2022, 2023. But nevertheless, you can go back on our website and listen on demand to Swords and Serpents where we have time to kind of get into all this stuff. And it's really, it's a fast paced study of the whole of the Old Testament, kind of how it fits together. But here, oh, I should say that we also did at the Institute, the life of Abraham. And so uh, if you want to go take a look at that study, that'd be great. But here, the, the key is the foes, right? So right here in chapter 14, Abraham comes from, he's in Egypt. So we got to actually, let's go context, context. Right? Let's go back a little ways. And that is that, Abraham's called out of Ur of the Chaldees. He's to the promised land, right? He comes to the promised land. The Lord's going to give him this land as an inheritance. And immediately there is a famine in the land. Take a look at chapter 12, which is the calling of Abraham, beginning in chapter 11, verse 27, which is also important, but we can't do all of swords and serpents here. We're just going to do, take a look at chapter 12, verse 1, the calling of Abraham. He comes into the promised land. And then chapter, chapter 12, verse 10, there's a famine in the land and Abraham leaves. Bad idea. You got to read between the lines here because God says he's going to provide for Abraham and there's a famine and Abraham freaks out. Freaks Instead, out. he leaves the land that God has called him to. Not a good idea. He goes down to Egypt, gets hooked up with Hagar, not a good situation, comes back to the promised land. And what's going on in the promised land? The place that he was supposed to receive it in his inheritance, there's a civil war going on. Yeah, and that's right. chapter 14. And if you're reading, if you just kind of open your Bibles, chapter 14, it's very confusing. Who are all these people? Well, if you actually do the study to read who they're, what, who's involved in this war, chapter 14's referent or background is given to you in, in Genesis chapters 10 and 11, which is the genealogy of the sons of Noah. I'm going to talk about this in a minute, who Melchizedek is. But Melchizedek is found in the middle of this civil war. And all of these guys in chapter 14 that are fighting each other, into which Abraham then goes and his foes are delivered into his hands. Um, uh, uh, all these guys are this, these are this, 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 the descendants of Ham who are meant to be uh, servants of, slaves of Shem, who are the sons of Noah, right? So Shem, Ham, and Japheth are the sons of Noah. Shem receives a blessing in the inheritance of his father. And Ham, who commits this, the, the sin of looking upon his father's nakedness, becomes a slave of slaves to his brother. And it's his descendants then that are in revolt and they're having, causing a war in the promised land 
Abraham goes in there and there discovers that his nephew Lot has been um, has been taken in the battle. And he goes up, bam, and he and he goes against the guy who wins the battle and has Lot and he takes Lot back from him, destroys the his enemy. Abraham does, conquers his enemy and takes his stuff. And now he comes back to the promised land or he comes, that was in the north. Now he's coming back towards Jerusalem. And here's where we, he meets this mystical figure, Melchizedek, all of a sudden. And you got to ask yourself, who is this guy, right? He's a priest of God most high. Yeah. I mean, where does this guy come from? Then he's a priest of God most high in the middle of this civil war in a promised land after the fall of Adam and Eve. Now we're in chapter 12 chapters later. It's a little confusing, which is why you got to go back and listen to Swords and Serpents. But we got to get into a little bit here. Go on. Okay. But okay. So I want to get into who is Melchizedek. Yeah. Where is Salem? And why is Melchizedek blessing Abram? Good. Yeah, these are all super important questions. They're going to help us understand what's going on. Number one principle, you're writing your notes down. You're getting this in your mind, Bible brothers and sisters. Get this in your mind. And that is according to the biblical uh, worldview, according to the Jews, their concept of the location of the Garden of Eden was that it was Jerusalem. Basically, Abraham was being re- receiving as an inheritance and you can go back and look at chapters and chapter 11 to see that Abram is a descendant of Noah, a descendant of Shem, who receives the blessing. And Abraham is receiving back the choice land, the land which Adam and Eve had received and that now is going to be restored to the family in Abraham. My point about that is that from a biblical standpoint, if you can accept Jerusalem as the original location of the Garden of Eden, it starts to make sense of the whole Bible, of understanding how God's people move in and out of this place. And of course, this place, Jerusalem, is the dwelling place of God, right? It's where the temple is built. So this is very helpful to us, uh, for us to understand that Jerusalem is the, a combination of two words, okay? The word in Hebrew for Yahweh will provide, Yira and Salem, which means peace, okay? Salem is the ancient name of the city, Jerusalem, Salem, okay? Now we meet this guy, right? Priest of God, most high, king of Salem. Now turn your Bibles with me very quickly to Psalm 76, and you're going to see this confirmed for you. Psalm 76, verse I think it's just verse one here. Psalm 76, verse one. In Judah, God is known. Now, what is Judah? Judah is one of the, one of the 12 sons of Israel, Jacob, Israel, who receives the blessing to become the head of the household, like Shem had done from Noah, right? Okay. Judah receives, when they come back from Egypt, from the 40-year wandering, they receive this portion of land, which is around Jerusalem. It's the land of Judah, right? The center of that land is Jerusalem itself, is the throne city where the descendants of Judah reign as king. And here we're going to find out we got another king here earlier in the story, Melchizedek. But here you go. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode, right? Where does the Lord dwell? has been established in Salem. That's the old name for it, Salem, which is this the mountain of peace or the city of peace, right? But now there's an additional name added to the city in Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22 is the, is the story of the offering of Isaac, the son of Abraham, Where does this happen? You guys all remember the story, right? From childhood books, you know the story here in Genesis chapter 22. Abram goes up a mountain to sacrifice his son to the Lord. The Lord stays his hand, right? And we have this this story here. I'm going to go to verse 13, actually. And Abram lifted up his eyes. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to go back actually earlier in the story to verse 7. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, 
my father, he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for the burnt offering. Now, now come down to verse 13. After the Lord stays his hands, he's going to sacrifice his son. Mm-hmm. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. This has always been understood as a prophetic statement that Abraham lifts up his eyes and behold, he doesn't see a lamb. He sees a ram. Scott Hahn makes this point, by the way. And I think in his, what's his book? One of his um, books. Uh, is it the supper of the lamb? You no, know, the father keeps his promises. A father oh, keeps his promises. Very okay. good book. And um, he says, look, but of course he's commenting based upon the church fathers who say, do you see the prophetic words, right? Abraham lifts up his eyes. Instead of seeing a lamb, he sees a ram. And therefore, he names the place after something which will take place there, namely when the Lamb of God is offered, right? The Father's church is a prefigurement of the sacrifice of Jesus, who goes to that very mountain to offer his life to God, right, for the sake of all of us. And so, so here you have, on the mountain, the Lord will provide, yira, in Hebrew, Salem, peace, on this mountain, the Lord will provide, right? So it's the, the provide what? His peace. Yeah. Because ultimately, Jesus is going to reconcile the division between God and man upon that mountain, right? And so there you go. Yerusalem, Melchizedek is the king of Jerusalem. And all around him is this civil war taking place, okay? Which means we need one more piece of the puzzle here. And that is... Who is this guy? Yeah, exactly. Right, Annie, you already asked that question. Well, who is Melchizedek? Um, I mean, yes, he's a priest of God most high, but what do we know about him? Some people say, oh, well, you know, he is, he has no father or mother. He's without, you know, so forth. Why? Look at, let's turn to Hebrews, the epistle to the Hebrews, because some commentators would say, oh, he's, well, they come up with all sorts of crazy answers. The, <laughs> remember the, the epistle to the Hebrews is written to the Hebrews, traditionally by Paul. St. Paul, to explain to the Hebrew, to the Jews, that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the King, and the high priest. He is the high priest who offers sacrifice to God, the once for all sacrifice. And of course, the Jews respond, well, how could Jesus possibly be a high priest? He's of the line of Judah, not of the line of Levi. And St. Paul says, you have to understand some of that line of Levi, brothers and sisters. The line of Levi was a band-aid yep. that was put on the God's people during the time of the Exodus. If you want to write this down, you can. I wrote my little note over here. Exodus chapter 32, verse 29. This is getting very complicated, but that's the argument that's going on that St. Paul is making, saying, hey, there is a priesthood that predates the Levitical priesthood. Well, yeah, it was like the father, right? At the it's the priesthood Passover it's the priesthood of God yeah who gives that gift to Adam and Eve who are made in his image and likeness it is God who blesses the Sabbath day the seventh day and therefore it is Adam and Eve who are meant to bless and sanctify creation as the priests of God's people yeah the priests of creation and therefore that's the argument that Saint Paul is making and here Hebrews chapter 12 did i say chapter what did i say i think you said chapter 11 chapter 7 chapter 7 hebrews chapter 7 you with me i am there for this melchizedek king of salem priest of the most high god met abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him and to him abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything he is first by translation of his name, King of Righteousness. Now you got to stop for a second because because uh, Saint Paul helps us understand the Hebrew language. Melech Zedek, two words like Yerushalayim, two words, right? They're brought together. Melech Zedek, Zedek in Hebrew is righteous, and Melech is king. Melchizedek is is not his name; it's his title. It's his throne name. Yeah. He is the King of Righteousness because he's the King of 
the place where God dwells. Yes. So by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem. That is king of peace. There you go. Salem, peace. Jerusalem, the Lord will provide his peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy. This is where people go crazy. They're like, oh, look at it. And I asked him, do you think he's the eternal God? No. Okay. Then you have to understand what St. Paul's talking about. He's without father or mother, meaning his priesthood is a priesthood given to him by God himself. It is not a Levitical priesthood. It is not a genealogy priesthood, if you will right? As the Levites would claim, which is the argument that St. Paul is entering into and saying, he's not, Jesus isn't a Levite. You're right. He's the firstborn son of God. And this is the original priesthood given to Adam in paradise. Go ahead. And if you want to, I was just going to say, if you want to learn more about that particular part of it, the Levitical priesthood versus the godly priesthood that, that Paul's talking about here, read Dr. Bergsma's book, Jesus and the Old Testament roots of the priesthood. You'll learn yes, a lot more excellent, about it. Excellent book. Excellent book. Yeah. Sorry, I, mean, I didn't- No, no, that's, that's good. So Melchizedek is the king of Jerusalem. He is a king and he's a priest because he predates the Levitical priesthood in which the kingdom of, of God's people, the king of God's people in the line of Judah got separated from the Levitical priesthood at the time of the sin of the golden calf. And why that took place, you have to go back and either read Dr. Bergsman's book, or you can listen to my Swords and Serpents series, which I get into this point. Okay, so we figured out who Melchizedek is, where Salem is. Well, why is he... Br- we haven't... Oh, wait, we haven't. You haven't said who Melchizedek actually is, just that he's right. king of righteousness. So exactly. who is he? All right. To that, we have to go to, to St. Ephraim. If you love the book of Genesis and you want a great commentary in the book of Genesis, St. Ephraim's commentary on Genesis, not a cheap book. It's put out by Catholic University Press. And you know, when the university puts out a book, they're going to charge for it. But here you go. St. Ephraim, well worth the investment. If you're into studying the book of Genesis, this is what St. Ephraim says. This Melchizedek is Shem. That's what he says. This Melchizedek is Shem. Why? What's he talking about? Okay, to understand this, you have to go back then to the story of the flood here in the book of Genesis. I'm just going to go very quickly. Chapter 9, verse 20 and following, the sin of of Ham, looking upon the nakedness of his father, and the blessing of Shem in verse 26. Shem then becomes the heir of his father's house yes Mm -hmm. and the genealogies which then follow showing that abraham is the descendant of shem he is the rightful heir to the throne of shem the throne of noah the throne of adam yes and here's what he says this Melchizedek is Shem. In other words, Melchizedek being his throne name, Shem being his given name, right? His birth name, who became a king due to his greatness. He was the head of 14 nations. In addition, he was a priest. He received this, the priesthood, from Noah, his father, through the rites of succession. Shem lived not only to the time of Abraham, as the scriptures say, but even to the time of Jacob and Esau, the grandsons of Abraham. Abraham would not have given him a tenth of everything unless he knew that Melchizedek was infinitely greater than himself. And he goes on, okay? So there you have it. Abraham comes back to the promised land. He sees the civil war going on. He wins the war. And then he takes the spoils of the war and he gives a tithe, 10%, to the one to whom it belongs, right? We tithe to the Lord to recognize that it's all his, right? Right. Well, who's he going to go give it to? He's going to go give it to his father, right? Or his father's 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 father, the head of the family. He goes and lays it at the feet of the father of the family, Shem, Melchizedek, yes? And then Melchizedek then blesses him for recognizing this truth, right? He then bestows upon Abraham 
the rest of the spoils. This is a great lesson, by the way. And I know I said I was going to get on all hobby horses and homilies about tithing. Yes. What does tithing do? Tithing, giving 10% of what I have, what I've received, recognizes the one from whom I received it. And then having recognized it, the Lord bestows back the rest of that entire, the, all the spoils of your life. Yeah, all the all those things you've received. And then you get 90. And you don't see how generous the Lord is. We're always, I can't afford 10%. <laughs> yeah. You, what do you mean you can't afford 10%? He's giving you 90. It's like, it's not yours. <laughs> None of it's yours. Yeah. He's giving you 90 you should be jumping up and down, rejoicing in the Lord that you get 90% of something that is somebody else's. Yeah. So Abraham comes back from the spoils of the war and goes to the guy for whom he won it and hands him 10% or hands him the whole thing. And Abraham then blesses him, giving him back the rest of the whole business. Yeah. It's a very beautiful story. And this interaction between this great, 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 great grandson and his great, 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 great grandfather and how this relationship between, it's an example of a relationship between us and our heavenly father. Just curious, do we know like how much that entailed for Abraham? Like what all was included in this tithe? I'm just kind of curious. I don't know if there's- Well, it's, 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 it's everything, right? He's the spoils yeah. of the war, but you have to understand that Abraham is, is a double, double the spoiler double spoiler <laughs> sure. because he goes down to Egypt. This happens multiple times, by the way, in the life of Abraham. And it happens later during the time of the Exodus. The people of God find themselves in Egypt or under a foreign power. This happens at the time of the Babylonian exile. The same story happens over and over again in scripture. And that is they go down, they're in the grip of the enemies of God, and they end up walking out of that situation with all of the other guy's money. Yeah. So he just left Egypt. We despoiled the Egyptians when he did. So he comes back to the land. The reason why he wins the war is because he's loaded with Egyptian everything. Yeah. He comes back. He goes down. There's a poor guy who's starving from the family. He comes back loaded to the hilt and he comes and he rocks the, the war. Then he takes that guy's stuff. And now he comes and lays all of it at the feet of Abraham. Uh, sorry, the feet of Melchizedek. Okay, so now moving on um, in my line of questioning here. We do have to, at some point, Annie, we're gonna have to move on. I know, but there's so much have, in here so that much, I wanna it's know. Very good. I know, I know. It's okay. I mean, well, okay, we're looking at, I know you said you didn't wanna get in, we weren't going to get into homilies on the Eucharist and stuff, but I mean, we are talking about Corpus Christi Sunday, and Melchizedek does bring out bread and wine in this reading. So I think we need to get to that. What, what is the significance of the bread and wine here? Yeah. Well, okay. We're going to go back and um, just take a look at what, um, what he says. Melchizedek, King of Salem, I'm in verse 18, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God, most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abraham by God, most high maker of heaven. Or blessed be God, most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. So he not only he not only blesses, right, if, 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 you, if you can accept what I was saying regarding tithing, he not only lays a blessing upon Abraham, he then, in a similar manner, blesses the Lord. And how do you bless the Lord? In a similar way as he just blessed Abraham. He took the things that were given to him, and he gave them back, yeah? He yeah. offered them to the one to whom they belong, Yeah. And, uh, and, and this is the center, by the way, of, of what we call sacrifice. Yeah, the big misunderstanding. And let me do a little bit of a side road here, explanation of sacrifice. I think it's very important because it gets us back to a, a proper understanding of what Jesus did for us on the cross and what the Lord asks for us in our lives. And to do that, I'm going to go very quickly to Cardinal Ratzinger, wonderful quote from his book, Spirit of the Liturgy. In that, on page 27 and 28, this is what he says. Oh, you got it right there, Annie. Look at that. Annie's got spirit. Of, you guys go, you have to have spirit of liturgy handy. It's one of those books yeah. you just got to have. Okay. And here I am in page 20, on page 27 in the last paragraph. He says, once again, we face the question, what is worship? Now, what happened when Abraham blessed the Lord, right? What is worship? What happens when we worship? 
In all religions, sacrifice is at the heart of worship. This is a concept that is buried under the debris of endless misunderstandings. The common view is that sacrifice has something to do with destruction, which is normally the way we think about it, right? Right, right? It means handing over to God a reality that is in some way precious to man. I've heard this so many theology classes I took and things. So the same. Okay. Okay. It means handing over to God a reality that is in some way precious to man. Now this handing over presupposes that it is withdrawn from use by man. And that can only happen through its destruction. It's definitive removal from the hands of man. But this immediately raises the question, what pleasure is God supposed to take in destruction? Is anything really surrendered to God through destruction? One answer is that destruction always conceals within itself the act of acknowledging God's sovereignty over all things. But can such a mechanical act really serve God's glory? Obviously not. True surrender to God. And now you got Melchizedek in your head, right? What's he doing with his bread and wine? How is he blessing the, the Lord? True surrender to God looks very different. It consists, according to the Father's infidelity with biblical thought, in the union of man and creation with God. Belonging to God has nothing to do with destruction or non-being. It is rather a way of being. It means emerging from the state of separation and apparent autonomy. Think Abraham coming to Melchizedek. There's a very uh, incarnational example of this, right? Abraham could have took off with all his money and all of his spoils, but he didn't. Instead, in that moment, he formed a communion with Melchizedek. And in this moment, in which Abraham receives those gifts, he forms a communion with God. Yeah? It means losing oneself is the only way of possibly finding oneself. That is why St. Augustine could say that the true sacrifice is the Chivitas Dei. That is love transformed mankind, the divinization of creation, the surrender of all things to God, that is the purpose of the world, that is the essence of sacrifice, that is the essence of worship. So what is, the, what is this bread and wine that, Abraham, that Melchizedek takes out? It is, it is the, the fruit of what is offered by Abraham, but now Melchizedek recognizes that all of this that's laid in front of him is actually the Lord's. So what does he do? He lifts it up, and he says, there's a, beautiful, there's a beautiful prayer that is the offertory in the Byzantine tradition, the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. We offer to you your own from what is your own in all and for the sake of all. Yeah. In other words, we offer to you what is already yours, right? Right. There's a similar, there's a similar prayer in a Novus Ordo in which I, I looked at it up here. Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, for through your goodness, we receive the bread we offer you. You see the idea? Yeah. Okay. yeah. So we're, you've we're given it to you. us and we offer it back to you. And there it is. That's what, and that's exactly what Ratzinger is talking about. The Lord's given us everything. What is sacrifice? Yeah, it's formed from two Latin words, which means to make holy. That's what it means. Well, what is, how does a thing become holy? How do you make it holy? It's got to come into communion with God, yeah. not be destroyed. It must be lifted up. Yeah. Then having been lifted up and offered to God, he then does what he does. He is love. And therefore he gives back to you yeah. bestowing upon you the greatest gift that he can give back, which is his own life is this love relationship, which is the center of our Eucharistic worship. And it was the center of what Melchizedek was doing by lifting up the bread and wine. He blessed the Lord. In other words, he put these things back into communion with God and then was able to receive them back in communion with God, having been filled up with the blessing of the, of our heavenly father. What Jesus does in giving us the Eucharist, now I'm going to go Jesus on you, okay, even though we're in the Old Testament. What Jesus does in the Eucharist, what we do on Sunday at Mass at the Divine Liturgy, is what we were meant to do from the very beginning, namely to live in the image and likeness of God who had given his life to us, we were to offer our lives back to him, yes? The Mass is not some magical formula in which Jesus kind of fixes a problem, it is God's plan for mankind made in his image and after his likeness. And it is what Melchizedek is doing 
on Jerusalem, in Jerusalem. And so to move us into the psalm then, uh, Psalm 110, our response comes from Psalm 110. You are a priest forever, according to the line of Melchizedek. That's right. And, and uh, I, I think there's something, I always say this about the responsorial psalms, is that the responsorial psalm is, first of all, meant to be sung, yes, by you, not to the priest, but as a proclamation of the reality of the community. And I'm not going all, you know, crazy liberal, you know, the, but there's a reality. We're baptized into Christ. We're baptized into who he is. All of us receive then the gift of the priesthood of Jesus Christ in which we are meant as Christians to do what Adam and Eve failed to do. And that is to take this created order and put it back into communion with God by offering everything we have received back to the, our heavenly father in Christ. So when, it, when we chant, you are a priest forever in the line of Melchizedek, we speak the truth about who Jesus is. We speak the truth about who Melchizedek is, we speak the truth about who the priesthood the priest is at the altar, and we speak the truth about who we are as Christians in this community gathered together to offer the Eucharistic bread and wine, and by extension, all of our life and all of the Creator back to communion with God. Exactly. And then and receive it all back priesthood. as a gift filled with His life. You know. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Well, speaking of offerings, let's look at the uh, gospel. Yes, please, Andy, because we got almost an entire hour on our Old Testament reading. <laughs> there's a lot here. There's a lot here. And Let's do it. Let's I mean, do there's it really a lot quickly. in the gospel, too, but we'll try to be you know, respectful yeah. of people's time here. Okay. But here we are. Luke chapter 9. Turn to Luke chapter 9 in your Bible, and we will start about halfway through verse 11. Just read from the beginning of verse 11. That's fine. Yeah. Uh, well, sorry. I have my lectionary book here. So <laughs> You're cheating, Andy. I caught you cheating well i have i would just like to say i have an rsv bible that's true that is the problem we want to use the the lectionary translation the new american bible which is what the usccb uses so that you recognize the words when you're at mass even though the translation and for the record i have a bible and a lectionary book here so okay. i you know how nice and you have your own lectionary book okay go ahead read <laughs> us fine halfway through the verse go ahead start halfway okay do you want to start with the beginning of verse 11 no, and then we'll take over? Jesus spoke to the crowds. Go. Okay. <laughs> Jesus spoke to the crowds about the kingdom of God, and he healed those who needed to be cured. As the day was drawing to a close, the 12 approached him and said, dismiss the crowds so they can go to the surrounding villages and farms and find lodging and provisions, for we are in a deserted place here. He said to them, give them some food yourselves. They replied, five loaves and two fish are all we have, unless we ourselves go and buy food for all these people. Now the men there numbered about 5,000. Then he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50. They did so and made them all sit down. Then taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he said the blessing over them, broke them, and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. They all ate and were satisfied. And when the leftover fragments were picked up, they filled 12 wicker baskets. Can we just get one thing out of the way right at the beginning? And that is, I know that some of you will be at mass on Sunday. I've even heard some hierarchs promote this idea in some eternal cities that the great miracle here is the miracle of generosity in which all of the followers of Jesus shared their peanut butter and jelly sandwich and, and revealed the love that they had for each other. You see, there was no real miracle taking place. It was the miracle of generosity. Can I just say my esteemed colleague on the Sunrise Morning Show, Matt Swaim says to that argument, the next time somebody tries to bring that up to you, take a bite out of their sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> there you go, exactly. That's all a bunch of nonsense. And it, it's rooted back, you have to understand, it's rooted back in uh, and, and, and promoted in seminaries back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, resulting, really resulting from the source critical theory that tried to 
detach the Bible from its so-called miraculous atmosphere, whatever you want to call it, saying that miracles aren't scientifically testable, therefore they're not knowable, and therefore they don't exist. And so there was a whole movement to try to remove all the miracles from the story so we could get pure gospel, right? Very Jeffersonian. They should have just picked up the Jefferson Bible. Well, this is all the miracles in the Bible. Exactly. So that, that movement coming out of Protestantism ended up impacting the church in the 30s, 40s, 50s, really in the 60s, when a lot of guys that are serving now and they're gray, got some more gray than I have, we're going to seminary. And this is what they learned in their, in their scripture courses. I'm sorry to say it, but they learned heresy in the seminaries. And this was one of the ideas promoted. Jesus did, in fact, multiply the loaves and fishes. He did so twice in the gospel accounts. He may have done so other times also. So as to miraculously feed these people and to teach them a fundamental lesson about who he is, which is why, which is what all the miracles were about, right? The miracles, the miracles Jesus did, he didn't go around as like a circus act. He did so to elicit faith. And this is exactly what is elicited. Yes. In the gospel of John, when this um, account is described in John chapter six, what is the result, Annie, in John chapter six? What do they want to do to him after he multiplies the loaves and fishes just before the famous account of the Eucharist? Remember? I mean, they, they came looking for him. They wanted, they wanted more food, basically. Mm-hmm. Oh, we, yes, but just before that, take a look. Go back oh, to your okay. Bibles very quickly to John chapter six. It's very interesting. Actually, I just noticed this this morning, not this part in John six, but back in Luke, I'll show you in a second. John six. And you get the, the, the multiplication of the loaves and fishes there in verse nine and following. Mm-hmm. And verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, yeah, right? To make him the Messiah, right? They're going to go and crown him. Yeah. So it elicits the very thing the miracle is supposed to elicit, right? Right. Look at Luke chapter nine, the story of the loaves and fishes right here ends in verse verse 17 and what happens in verse 18 and following jesus says to peter who are they saying that i am Mm. right oh some say john the baptist others elijah and he said to them but who do you say that peter says you're the messiah you're the king right so do you see how john john and and luke are telling the same story from slightly different perspectives okay so anyways, it's, that's what it's supposed to do. And that's what exactly, that's why Jesus did the miracles. Yeah. He healed the paralytic so the paralytic could walk again, not with, not with his body, but with God. Yes. Yes. He, he did heal his body so he could walk again with his body. But the deeper purpose was that he would come to faith and those that saw him could also now begin to walk with God again. Yeah. So here this, this happens, the multiplication of the loaves and fishes. So as to elicit and it should do the same thing for us to realize who this one is that we're that, that is walking around Galilee. Well, you can hardly blame them for thinking he's a king if he starts off speaking to the crowds about the kingdom of God, right? <laughs> well, this is what his preaching is all about, yeah. right? And Especially and, and, in Luke, right? Yeah, exactly. And now let's do a little context, okay? Right here, just to help everybody, where we are in the gospel story. First of all, we're nearing the end. How do I know we're nearing the end? Because it's in Luke chapter 9 that the transfiguration takes place. We've talked about this before in St. Gospel Reflection. This transfiguration is the beginning of the passion narrative, really. It's what sets him sets him towards Jerusalem. So Jesus has now been going around. He's doing all these things, doing all these miracles. And behind the scene, what's going on? The Pharisees are starting to freak out because they realize they're losing control. And there's crowds gathering around. And now not only is Jesus doing miracles, but he sends the apostles out. Look in chapter nine, verse one. And he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. And he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God. The kingdom's at hand. Well, who's going to have a problem with that? The authorities who think they're in charge of the kingdom, right? So Jesus can now have two enemies, the Jews who are losing control, they're losing their power if Jesus is who he says he is. And the civil authorities, yeah. Herod, look at chapter nine, verse seven. Now, Herod, the Tetrarch, 
heard of all that was done, and he was perplexed because he had said by said that he was John by some that it was, John had been raised from the dead, right? Because Herod killed John, <laughs> yeah, John right. the Baptist. So now he's like, oh, <laughs> I killed the guy, and now this guy's even worse. So what's Herod going to want to do? He's going to want to kill Jesus, and this is a fundamental background to help us understand what's what's taking place because where does this where what happens in the context of this this story well jesus hears about the death of john and notice they go to it's here in the text here verse 12 now the day began to wear away and the 12 came and said to him send the crowd away and go to the, into the villages and country round about to lodge and get promise provisions for we are here in a lonely place. Well, yeah. guess what, my friends? We actually know where this was because the early Christians held these sacred locations. Now pull up on the screen here. You can see now this is the area of the, uh, of the springs that are just south of Capernaum, okay? This is the place where Jesus called the apostles. It's called Tabga. And it's the place, the traditional place where this miracle took place. And you can go there today and you can see the stone that Jesus broke the bread on, okay? Oh, cool. And it's very beautiful. In fact, there's a very early account by the nun Egeria, who was a nun from Spain. She took a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, and this is what she describes. She says, in Capernaum, now some of you have been to the Holy Land with me, you're going to love this because you remember the places, right? In Capernaum, a church was made out of the house of the Prince of the Apostles, Peter, and you can go see that today. Okay. The synagogue is also there. You can go visit that today also. Okay. Now, now, not far from there, there are the stone steps can be seen on which the Lord stood when after the resurrection, the apostles were out in the boat and, he, and then Peter jumps in the water, right? Above the lake, there's also a field of grass with much hay and several palms. By it, there are seven springs each of which supplies a huge quantity of water in the field. The Lord fed the people with five loaves of, of bread. We're going to bring up now this, this look at this beautiful picture of this waterfall coming in that I take the pilgrims to a lot of people have been in the Holy land with other groups. Do not go visit the spot because it's not developed. You have to go and like put on some water shoes and go wade through the reeds to get to the spot but it is so cool and you cannot miss this spot. I always take the pilgrims, the ICC there, and it's right there above that spring in that area where these 5,000 people gather. And just one last thing about this context then is to understand this, the political, this political thing that's going on. Jesus then goes to this lonely place, right? This place away. But, and the apostles have been out and they're, they're, they're doing all the miracles or healing people. So they come back. I'm going to tell you, I know a lot of priests and deacons and so forth watch this, participate in this study. You know, when you get done with mass on Sunday, you're exhausted. At least I am, because it's like three and a half hours in the Byzantine liturgy. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, and they, they went out in the mission field. Now they come back. And what do they find? Jesus gone crazy. He's got 5,000 people and they're tired. And then now he turns to me and says, you feed them. And what do they say? What? We're what exhausted. Talking about <laughs> send them away, Lord. Please, I can't take it anymore. And uh, and uh, and 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 okay. And so that's kind of the context. You know, of that's such a on. great. That's such a great like metaphor for mass in general. I'm thinking like <laughs> I'm exhausted after mass, and half the time it's less than an hour that I'm uh, that I'm at mass, but I'm you know dealing with little toddlers. You got it. Yeah, it's a, yeah. kind of a different exhaustion, I think. But yeah, still. you got you got to come to church. At, at <laughs> then the I got to come home and feed them. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So there, um, there's your context, Annie. There's the context. Okay, so one last question then on on this gospel in Luke nine. I mean, yeah. and not to be all literal and stuff here, Father, but I mean, obviously there is bread involved here. We're talking about loaves of bread. But the last time I checked, fish is not wine. So <laughs> what is, I mean, I don't know. Do you, you don't drink fish wine. Do you, I've never heard of such a thing. Um, that would be rather gross. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be gross. Exactly. So 
why is this miracle associated with the Eucharist? That's a good question, Annie. I'm not sure I have a good answer for you in the sense of like, oh, here's your, you know, two e two plus two equals four, right? Sure, sure. Um, and I actually, I don't know, the, the, I'm sure the church fathers have commented, maybe you know commentaries of the church fathers in this point, but fish, I will say this, a couple things. Fish is obviously a symbol of, of, of the Christians, right? It's fish that Jesus lays upon the charcoal fire and, and so forth. The fish has always been a symbol of, of Christ because Jesus enters into the tomb and comes out unharmed, right? Just like fish go down in the water. The waters for the ancient biblical people were a tomb, right? That's why St. Paul says when you're baptized, you're baptized in the death of Christ. We baptize by immersion, placing the person underneath the water, preferably, because it shows us the truth of what's taking place. It's a, a, a mystical burial underneath the waters taking place. The fish was a symbol for the early Christians of Christ because of this, this truth of how the, there's other explanations, but okay. But I, I would say this, and Annie, feel free if you have some other insight you wanted to share, but I would, I would say it helps us actually by it not being wine. It helps us break out of our formulaic approach to the divine liturgy, to the mass in which certain things are done, certain words are said, and presto, bingo, you have Jesus and allows us to see the Eucharist, the bread and the wine, transformed in the body and blood of Christ, from a greater salvation standpoint in which the whole of creation is meant to be divinized. So the bread and wine that are brought to the altar are symbolic of a representation of the greater offering which is brought. In fact, bread and wine originally in the Eucharistic liturgy, you didn't order stamped out hosts. You, <laughs> right, right. the people brought their tithe to the church. And there was a, a building in the early church. There was always a building outside the church in which when people gathered for the liturgy, they would bring their stuff, right? They'd tie up their newly born goat and their, you know, oranges off their tree and the grapes and the wine that was made and the bread would be offered. And the bishop would send the deacon out this is the origin of the offertory, by the way. The bishop would send the deacons out. They would go and look through all that was offered, and they would take the best bread and the best wine, and they would carry it into the church, remembering all those people that had brought their offerings. Yeah. yeah? That's why we do the prayers of the faithful during that time, or in the traditional Latin liturgy, similar prayers are offered, not necessarily names are being said and things like that. But in the divine liturgy of the St. John Christum, yes, indeed, we carry the bread and the wine remembering the faithful who brought them yeah and so i would just say that this helps us to understand the whole of the divinization of creation the receiving of the gifts of what we have to, we have received the offering them to god and then him bestowing upon us what we could never have imagined and our heads blow off and say he is indeed the messiah the anointed one of god who has come to save our souls Annie, did you have anything to add to that regarding the well, fish? I guess the I guess what was leading me to this question in the first place was that the line in here, they all ate and were satisfied. Mm. That seems very Eucharistic to me. It is Eucharistic. I would say read this text in the context of the Gospel of John, the, what we just saw in John chapter six, because their satisfaction, it, 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 it's Eucharistic, but with a warning. Sure. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, because the satisfaction, which they experience is one of their belly. Oh yeah. And he tells that to and them he, in John he 6. He says very yeah, clearly in John like, chapter yeah. six, you follow me, not because not, not because you have, well, let's go look at it real quick. Okay. You follow me because look, John chapter six, verse 26, John chapter six, verse 26, right after the multiplication of loaves and fishes in John, which is the same miracle, right? We get a little bit more of the story of the conversation right. that happens. Yeah. Verse 26, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs. So why do they want to make him king? Not because of the miracle. And this is the problem, the fracturing of the group itself, right? Who are, those are unable to even come to faith in Christ as Peter does. But he says, you, not because you saw but because you, you're, you, you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, you're, you're just focused here. Yeah, you don't get it. Right. And I think there's a, there's even a more underlying problem taking place among these people. How is it that they, they're filling any? 
How is it that from some bread and some fish, they filled themselves? Because if you knew that there was just like, you know, this in your family, or you got a lot of kids, there's a little bit of food. What do you do? You share it. You, you take a little bit, right? Right. They didn't. They started filling themselves when the food came with disregarding those around them. Mm. So far from this being the miracle of generosity in the gospel of John, this miracle actually draws out the fundamental problem that is taking place among these followers of Jesus, yeah, that they have come to him and some have come to faith, but many, many others have not. They've been very selfish, self-centered in the healings, and they're going to be the very ones that cry out, crucify him, crucify him. Hmm. But Jesus says in John six that I am the bread of life and he who comes to me shall not hunger. I guess I was kind of reading that all who ate and were satisfied. Oh, kind of in that context. Uh, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Any, I mean, obviously kind of a prefigurement, then, I guess yes. you could say. And I, and I, and, and I hope your priest is going to pull this out in the giving your homilies this Sunday about now applying all of this to the, to the Eucharist, which we receive. Yeah. Okay, so then just in the interest of time to quickly take a look at yeah. our second reading, because we see this, this blessing that the Lord has over, over the bread and fish, and, and then we see this blessing, well, kind of St. Paul recounting what happened at the Last Supper, we see this, this same kind of blessing that Jesus gives. Yeah, I mean, this, obviously, this is a very early account, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, of the, of the Eucharist being celebrated by the early Christians. Yeah. I mean, look, it's very obvious. This is what they were doing. And I, I think we don't have to say a lot about that. I will say this, that, that there's much discussion in the church today. So I'm just going to go, I'm going to not go spiritual right now, because I think there's much to be drawn from this text itself in your own reading. And I think your priest is going to expound upon it. I will say this. There's much in the church they say about regarding who can receive communion, who can't. Okay. And I want to go back very quickly to the Garden of Eden and say that in, in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve were cast out of paradise, I'm in chapter 3, verse 22, verse 22, it says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he put forth his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore God sent him forth from the garden. St. Ephraim says, why would our Lord not want Adam and Eve to receive the gift of life from the tree of life? He says, because they were in the fallen state. And if they'd eaten from the tree of life, they would have lived forever as separated from God. So in his mercy, he separated them from this gift of life that they were to eat and, and, and that they might live forever so that they might receive it worthily in an appropriate way. It's the same thing that St. Paul says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in the verses following this text in which this, the liturgy of the early Christians is told to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 through 26. And then he gives a warning in verse 27, that just after these verses yeah. that are not included in this biblical text that are in the lectionary. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord, which is why the church in our mercy has always said, if you are, if you find yourself in an unworthy state, in other words, you're in mortal sin or you're denying the fundamental teachings of Christ, you, you should not try to have communion with him because you have placed yourself outside of that communion. And that which God is meant to be your salvation will become your condemnation. So in her mercy, the church has always practiced closed communion. We have a talk on the Institute website by Monsignor Pope called Unworthy of Christ. Many have heard recently of Archbishop Cordeleone, the Archbishop of San Francisco, refusing communion and instructing his priest to not give Holy Communion to Nancy Pelosi, who is an avowed heretic. And he did so out of mercy. So that God willing, by removing that gift from her, she will repent of her sin of, of, of promoting abortion, come to her senses, and come back to communion with God in whom there is salvation and no other. My brothers and sisters, we care for the Eucharist because we care for Christ. And we care for those who come to receive communion with him. You cannot 
deny Christ and have communion with him at the same time. And the church in our mercy has always recognized that from the very earliest days of the church here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, this feast of Corpus Christi, may God bless you all as we come forward confessing our sins. Make that your practice this Sunday or this Saturday. Go to holy confession so that you can come to receive what the Lord has prepared for you, namely communion with himself. And having received this gift of transformative communion, the body and blood of Christ, we may go out into the world and transform this created order into a Eucharistic offering, just as Melchizedek had done in the book of Genesis. May God bless you all. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Sunday Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.